We're joined today by Dr. Ebi Dagogo Jack of the Massachusetts General Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. In our conversation, we asked Dr. Dagogo Jack to discuss the types of immunotherapy treatments currently available to mesothelioma patients, as well as treatments undergoing clinical trials that might be available in the future. The interview is moderated by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation's Patient Services Director, Shannon Sinclair. MesoTV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. The Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization, provides patient support and education services, funds peer-reviewed research, and advocates for increased funding of mesothelioma research. This season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bristol-Myers Squibb, NovoCure, Merck, The Gory Law Firm, TCR Square, AstraZeneca, Early Lucarelli Sweeney, and Meisenkothen. Visit CureMeso.org to learn more. Hi, everybody. Thank you for tuning in today for this episode of Meso TV. Today, we're going to talk about immunotherapy, kind of where we're at and where we're headed with that. And I'm proud to introduce that we have Dr. Dagogo Jack with us today from Mass General. Um, I will let her introduce herself as well as um, the program that is running at Mass General. Hi, everyone. Good to be with you today. If it's morning, night, evening, wherever, glad you could join us. And so, as mentioned, I'm Ibi Dagogo Jack. I'm a thoracic oncologist at Mass General. So, I specialize in lung cancers and mesotheliomas. And as you know, a lot of what we do at kind of academic medical centers is team based. And so, our team, as from the medical oncology standpoint, I work with nine other medical oncologists, but I'm the one in our group who has the, uh, the clinical and research interest in mesothelioma. From, we have a uh, proton, which is a specialized type of radiation that allows you to kind of spare the normal tissue and really pinpoint the radiation. We have a proton radiation center um, that's led by Henning Willers here, but we also have two other radiation oncologists who have an interest in mesothelioma, including Drs. Kane and Dr. Kandekar. And then on the surgical side, we have, I, I think it's great, we have 10 thoracic surgeons who wow. I work with closely, four of whom have a, four to five of whom have a specialized interest in mesothelioma. And we also have, as part of our team, an interventional radiologist who's very kind of invested in thinking about non-radiation-based approaches to help palliate pain and also to address if the cancer is maybe growing just in one spot. So cryoablation, those types of thermal ablation therapies. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That's, that's great to know um, and get to know the team a little bit better. So today I wanted to talk a little bit about immunotherapy um, and kind of where we're at right now is what, what we'll start with. Um, but I really just wanted you to describe for everybody what is immunotherapy and how exactly does it work within the body? I, I think people often get confused because of um, you know what we know about chemotherapy, mm -hmm. but in reality immunotherapy is quite different. It is. And I always start kind of at kind of basic principles, right? I always say we've all, I mean, most people have had some sort of bacterial or viral infection in their lifetime, right? And the reason that you don't have them for chronically is that your body recognizes foreign proteins made by bacteria and viruses. It turns out that when a normal cell transforms into a cancer, it also makes these foreign proteins. But because it looks a lot like a normal cell, our bodies, are, our immune system 
Uh, there are many different flavors of the immune system. Here we're talking about cells called T cells. They are built, it's built to be cautious. It doesn't want to attack itself and cause an autoimmune disease like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. And so if it sees things that look kind of like a normal cell, it's shyer about attacking them. Then so some of these things are proteins that we call, you may come across the word checkpoint and other things like that. One of which is PDL1, perhaps the one we're most familiar with, and CTLA4. These are, for lack of a better term, proteins that the cancer cells coat themselves in to prevent the immune system from attacking them. It tells the immune system kind of move on, continue kind of patrolling the body, I'm safe. And so these immunotherapies help remove some of these kind of deceptive protein coverings that um, or checkpoints that the cancer cells might adapt or adopt. So the immune system can now recognize the cancer for what it is. So it's a very complex thing and we're just scratching the surface, but we, we've gotten a pretty good handle on therapies for a few of these checkpoints, the most common of which being kind of that PD-1, PD-L1, and then CTLA-4. And I know that um, with the immunotherapies, one of the things that I stress to patients um, who are on them is that because of kind of stripping that coating away and allowing that immune system, we are sort of revving it up um, mm -hmm. and, and we're not allowing it to have uh, a brake pedal per se. Um, and so that's kind of where those side effects come from that we exactly. do see from them. Exactly. Yeah. So the side effects are a little bit different from what we anticipate with chemo, right? With chemo, we think about hair loss, nausea, fatigue, and other things. The immunotherapy-related uh, side effects tend to be kind of, uh, as you said, side effects or consequences from having a revved-up immune system that may become over-exuberant, right? In its, in its kind of journey to try to attack the cancer, it may get lost along the way and attack other proteins on uh, your normal organs. And so it can be a rash, it can be diarrhea, it can be inflammation of the lungs. And so what I tell my patients when they start an immunotherapy is that nothing is too small, right? If you have a rash for more than 24 hours, diarrhea that lasts more than a day or so, let us know because it's better to get a good handle on it. And a lot of these can be treated either by stopping the drug or kind of introducing things like steroids or anti-inflammatories to calm down the inflammation. Yeah, that's what I um, tried to really uh, get through to these patients as well, because as we know, many of our patients try to power through, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of um, generations also do not like to, um, they don't like to complain. And so I tell them, this is the one point in time where you want to complain, um, yeah. and you want to make sure that you tell your team, even if it seems in insignificant, um, it could certainly turn significant very quickly. So, um, yeah, yeah very... Okay. Very yeah, the other thing I tell people, I agree. The other thing I say is I think it gives us some reassurance is that these drugs, I, I neglected to mention that they're intravenous, so that we don't have pill forms of immunotherapy. There's a push towards getting kind of injectable forms, but we're not quite there yet. And so immunotherapies are antibodies, so they last in your system for a long time. And so if you have to pause them because of a side effect, it's not like the next day you don't have it. It's not working against your cancer cells. It's still working for several weeks on average. And for some people, depending on how long you've been on it, they can keep working for months after you pause to get a good handle on the side effects. Yeah, thank you. And then I just wanted to kind of give an overview of as of right now, uh, what immunotherapies are actually FDA approved for mesothelioma? 
Yeah, so the one that you um, most commonly will encounter is a combination of immunotherapies. So it's approved for mesothelioma, but we actually borrowed the regimens from lung cancer and melanoma. So we got, a, we got a good sense of how tolerable they were from those diseases. So the combination is a combo of drugs called Nevo-Ipi or Ipi-Nevo, you might hear, or also called Opdivo and Yervoy. They're given together. Um, usually for about two years, as long as the cancer is responding. So you get periodic scans. If the cancer unfortunately starts to grow, you do stop these medications. Um, one of them, you get it every three weeks. The other one, you get every six weeks. Um, and so that is based on a clinical trial that took our age-old standard of chemotherapy and, and a kind of randomized or assigned people to half of them to get Ipinevo or Opdivo-Yervoy another half to get chemo and showed that um, people live longer with the uh, Nevo Ipi. And in particular, it was a lot, it performed better than chemotherapy for types of mesothelioma, like biphasic and sarcomatoid mesothelioma. That's not to say that it doesn't, one of the common misconceptions is that, oh, it only works for that type or it works better for that type. I think it's important to dispel that myth. What I will say is that it probably when you look at the data, it works equally well, at least that cocktail for both, for all the types of histologic types. It's just that chemotherapy, the chemo we have now, unfortunately doesn't work as well for the non-epithelioid. And so in my clinical practice, if I meet a patient who has a non-epithelioid mesothelioma, I think for me, it, it's, it is more straightforward to reach for the ipinevo. Whereas if it's an epithelioid mesothelioma, I think that some doctors are still giving chemo before the ipinevo or kind of starting it really, we're still sorting out which sequence makes the most sense. Outside, outside of this combination, there is one you may, you may have heard about or seen commercials for called Keytruda or Pembrolizumab. And so that is a little bit different. It's, it, it's similar in mechanism of action to the Opdivo component of Ipinevo or the Nevo component of Ipinevo. That has a unique indication. So it is approved if your tumor has a high, what we call tumor mutation burden. And tumor mutation burden is just essentially looking at all the mutations that are in, or genetic changes in the cancer itself. The thought process is that each of those genetic changes has a potential to become an abnormal protein. So having a whole lot of genetic changes or high mutation burden or mutation load creates a whole bunch of foreign proteins, which we call neopeptides or neoantigens that trigger to the immune system that, hey, this looks a lot different than a normal cell and is in theory better positioned to be attacked by the immune system. For meso, I think a key thing to say is that most of the mesotheliomas have a low mutation burden. So about two is generally what we see. And for the Keytruda to be uh, valid or something that your doctor can give you, you want that threshold a little bit closer to 10. Thank you. That was a great explanation. Um, I do get that question quite often because I think um, it is confusing, um, you know, when you hear that Keytruda has been approved for it, but in reality, it is a very small indication of, um, you know, what mesothelioma patients would actually benefit for it right now. Um, I just wanted to ask also, you answered the question as to kind of how you would know if somebody will be a good candidate for immunotherapy. Um, but can you explain as far as um, the PDL1 expression? Um, 
how does that play into whether or not you would give somebody immunotherapy or whether you would choose chemotherapy first for somebody who had um, like epithelioid? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. So PDL1, to take a step back, is one of those proteins that the immune that the uh, cancer cells coat themselves in to tell the immune system, like a camouflage, to put the brakes on the immune system. And so Opdivo and uh, Keytruda are medicines that block PDL1 or kind of block the interaction between the immune cell and the tumor and are really dependent on that PDL1. For other cancers, for example, another cancer in the lungs, lung cancer, PDL1 is a, it's a, it correlates very well. It tells us very well whether or not having a medicine like uh, Keytruda is going to be effective. In mesothelioma, we're still sorting that out. And so we have seen responses to Opdivo and Yervoy, even if the cancer does not have any protein expression of PDL1. And so we tend to uncouple them. But what I will say is that if you look at the study that led to the approval of Opdivo and Yervoy, it does seem that, and we've seen it across studies, that perhaps uh, chemo may not be like tumors that have PDL1 expression. They may be uh, tumors that are, may not benefit as well from chemotherapy in general. And so for some doctors, they say, well, if that's the case, then I probably will prioritize Opdivo Yervoy first. I will tell you right now that that is still being sorted out. And so we don't think it's a perfect, what we call biomarker right now, that we shouldn't exclude people or pick people for the therapy based on whether or not the tumor cells have that pdl one marker. And do we know, um, because our patients often deal with um, progression of disease, you know, and response and then progression again, um, if they are maybe not a good candidate in the beginning, can they become a good candidate? Does that PDL1 status potentially change over time? Yeah, so these are areas of research as well. We do know from lung cancer that it does change, uh, but the, but most people um, don't necessarily go from having having very high PDL1 expression to having none, right? And so I think the variability is probably quite minimal. And I think the reason that and I think that it's probably underappreciated, right? Because most people don't have multiple biopsies throughout kind of their disease course. So that's the tough part, which is why to me, I, I, it gives me even more kind of reassurance and even more reason to emphasize that if you're not a candidate for an immune therapy for some reason, maybe because of your health status at the time and your health status improves or they get a better handle on, uh, sometimes we think about autoimmune conditions as a reason not to get immune therapy because we know from kind of studies across diseases that if you already have an autoimmune condition, it can get worse when you get immune therapy. And so if we work with your doctors, like maybe your rheumatologist or dermatologist, and they feel that it's safe to give you immune therapy after they get a good handle on it, then yes, those are cases where I would reconsider it. But the PDL1 protein status, I, I tend to, at the moment, discount it. In the future, hopefully we'll know enough about it and how it changes for us to maybe incorporate it in other biomarkers into our decision making. Thank you. Another question that I get quite often is, why is there a 24-month cutoff with the combination um, Ipinevo? And what happens after those 24 months if somebody gets to that point um, in, in their um, treatment journey? Yeah, 
I'll give you the tongue-in-cheek answer first. So the tongue-in-cheek answer is that someone just built a trial and said, let's do it in for two years with the first study in solid tumors and just borrow that principle moving forward. And I'll give you the biological answer, right? And so immune therapy is different from chemo. Chemo, you have to keep giving it for it to keep damaging the cancer cells, starving them of nutrients, et cetera. The reason people get excited about immune therapy is that it is kind of gradually rewiring your immune system to recognize your cancer and be constantly on patrol for your cancer. And so given that hypothesis, there is a hope that after a, some sort of self-limited course of immune therapy, your immune system knows its job, right? It, it knows its charge. And so you don't have to stay on it permanently. And so generally we do stop it after two years because I, I think most people are okay with stopping it after two years if it's fewer doctor's visits, et cetera. But that doesn't mean we stop treating the cancer, right? The immune therapy is still working against the cancer and your doctor's still probably getting scans to keep an eye on the cancer. In fact, our first chest move, the first thing we pull, we pull out of our back pocket if we see signs of growth would be to reintroduce the immunotherapy. And for some people it does work when you reintroduce it. And so it's really um, based on the study designs and based on the uh, mechanism of action of immunotherapy. And that's the reason we stop it. I'll note that not many people, some people stop it before two years. I just want to put that out there that yeah. if your doctor thinks it's safest and you feel like it's safest to stop before two years because of a toxicity, you can still kind of reap the benefits of the therapy. They've looked like if you stop for a toxicity, there are some people who are still benefiting, their cancer is still under control. And so it really is a delicate balance between what is, how safe is it to give right now? And then kind of, and how are you tolerating it and how is it working? That's what I was wondering when you hit that 24 mark. Um, I know, you know, s some of the studies have shown that um, we could be doing more damage if we if we keep giving them um, versus just letting them continue to work at where they were at um, because they are still telling those cells what to do and kind of rewiring them, like you said. Exactly. Um, and I think that's another good point um, for people that are on immunotherapy or have been on immunotherapy and have had it stopped. Um, one of the other things is that those side effects can also show up six months down the line. Um, and so, you know, good for them to realize that they need to keep still looking for those things. Exactly. Um, we see some side effects just around two years too, right? The immune system is baffling and it's, it's very complicated. At the end of the day, it helps us by being so complicated because it kind of attacks viruses, bacteria, et cetera. But from an oncology standpoint, it's, perple it's perplexing and it keeps us on our toes for sure. <laughs> yes. So I wanted to talk now about what is the future of immunotherapy and where are we at in the clinical trial setting right now? Um, I, I know from just my own studies of clinical trials, it appears that a lot of what we're doing is we're pairing immunotherapy with some other intervention, um, whether that's cryoablation or radiation therapy. Um, and I just wanted to kind of have you explain the sort of why behind that or what we're trying to do with that. Yeah, so the why comes down to a kind of a binary concept. It's probably a little bit of an oversimplification that there are some tumors that are hot, right? They are programmed to be responsive to immune therapy. They have all the cells right there, those T cells to attack it. And so once you remove that protein, they're already engaged and they can attack it. And then there are some tumors that are a little bit cold. They need a little more encouragement. Maybe they don't have the right population of immune cells there. Maybe they're not enough tumor foreign proteins for the immune system to be revved up. 
And so we tend to think of mesothelioma, most mesotheliomas are be, as being a little bit colder, not that immune uh, rich or prime tumor. And so a lot of these combination strategies are thinking of ways to kind of rev up the immune system beyond what PD-1 inhibitor, like Optivo Yervoi can do. And so sometimes destroying the tumor with ablation or with radiation can damage the cells and release some of the tumor proteins directly for the immune system to see. And so maybe if the immunotherapy is on at the same time or soon after, then the immune cells have already been recruited. They know exactly where they should redirect their efforts uh, towards. And so that's the rationale for that. And then there's other kind of uh, chemo is another way to do that. And so I think one of the exciting things coming down the pipeline is kind of building off of two phase two studies kind of in Australia and the US where they're now combining efforts kind of globally to ask the question, if I add a medicine that's like Opdivo and like uh, Keytruda called uh, Infinzi or Dervalumab to a backbone of chemo, can, does it do better than doing chemo alone? Here, the chemo will kill the cancer cells and release those proteins again. So we think of it as priming the immune system. And so we should have results of that type of study in a couple of years, but it's an ongoing kind of big study. And then there's other studies. Yeah, very exciting. There's Mm -hmm. other studies looking at uh, other immune checkpoints, I guess, is the way I would put it. Mesothelioma is interesting in that we focused a lot on PD-L1 so far, or PD-1. But there's another, there are other proteins that mesothelioma cells have when people look at it kind of at a scientific level and kind of study the slides, things like that, including proteins like Vista and other things that tell the immune system, hey, don't kind of don't attack me, like I, kind of permit me to be here. And so there's efforts, again, they're very nascent and very early on to have therapies like Keytruda that are specific to other proteins. So, so looking at uh, that are targeting other checkpoints. Thank you so much. That was very helpful. Um, I know that every trial is a little bit different, um, and we did kind of touch on this a little bit when you talked about people having an autoimmune disease, but does that make somebody ineligible for um, these immunotherapy trials? Um, And I guess you sort of touched on why, um, but if you could explain that a little bit. Happy to. Yeah, so when uh, people build clinical trials, they're usually thinking about something investigational, right? Either it's a brand new drug that's never been tested in humans before. So you want it in the safest scenario to figure, to be able to tease out for the average person, what is the side effect profile of my drug? Or it's a kind of a combination that's been used in another disease and you're trying to try it, you're trying to use it in a different disease, kind of Optivo, Yervo, that, that type of thing. And so when we think about things that increase the likelihood of having a side effect from immunotherapy, um, having a dis, somewhat dysregulated immune system at baseline is one. And so an autoimmune disease is a dysregulated immune system, right? It, it's that your immune system thinks some aspect of a normal cell is a foreign cell. So, so if you have an autoimmune arthritis, that means your immune system for some reasons thinks it should attack your joints. And so what happens is that when you then add Opdivo and Yervoi or Keytruda to that, the immune cells are even, they double down, right? They're even more empowered to attack that joint or attack that organ. And so traditionally, um, unfortunately, people who have autoimmune diseases are excluded from those studies out of an abundance of caution and for safety reasons. 
there was an effort a few years ago to design immunotherapy trials specifically for that population because we really need to gain more information, right? It's not that every single person should be excluded. And so often what happens in clinical practice, it's a discussion. It's a patient level discussion working with other specialties, right? They're rheumatologists, they're joint specialists, I guess, to figure out, is there a medicine that we can put you on to control the joint effects? Can we monitor you closely? while you're on the immunotherapy and have a very low threshold to pull back on the immunotherapy if there's toxicity. Thank you. If somebody has already done immunotherapy, so let's say that they've had first-line um, ipinevo for mesothelioma, are they eligible to potentially go on a trial down the line that is also looking at some sort of immunotherapy? Yeah, and I think the answer is yes, because we don't know yet kind of which protein is the right one to target. And I, to be honest, I will tell you that we will probably arrive at the conclusion that there is not just one protein for every tumor, right? It's almost as our goal is always to personalize and be as adaptive as possible. And so a lot of these upcoming trials are looking at different proteins and different uh, nodes or hubs of the immune system. And so just because the cancer has become uh, found a way to adapt to treatment with ipinevo or optivo-yervoid doesn't mean some newer therapy won't work. And so whether that newer therapy is like an infusional therapy or kind of the more kind of sophisticated types of therapies like CAR T-cell therapies and other engineered types of therapies, we have no reason to believe that they won't work just as well because the optivo year voice stopped working. The one thing we do know, and I, I want to point out, is that I sometimes see people who had uh, who have Optivo Yervoy and they want to go on Keytruda or, or they've had uh, maybe Optivo by itself and they want to add the Yervoy to it. And I don't think we have a lot of great data to tell us that just adding that or just going to one drug that's similar will be effective. And so my bias is often to try something new, a trial or something in that, in that setting. Thank you. And then I wanted to touch base with you about what types of trials that um, you have available at Mass General right now um, that are up and coming or, you know, recruiting as of right now for our mesothelioma patients. Yeah. And so to, to, I started off with a little bit of background of kind of who we are as a program at Mass General. So some people know and some people don't know that a lot of our, for lack of a word, bread and butter in our thoracic oncology group has been based on targeted therapies in lung cancer, right? A lot of things tied to the laboratory, right? Building disease models based off of tissue biopsies and other things and trying to pair the right uh, drug with the right cancer. And so I, I approach mesothelioma from a precision medicine standpoint. And so very excited about having trials that are looking at particular um, mutations, particular proteins and mesothelioma that make the cancer more susceptible to blocking a different protein, right? These are called synthetic lethal. And so we have a bunch of kind of precision medicine type trials here, looking at uh, one is called a yactid inhibitor, looking at a hippo pathway that's dysregulated in about 60% of mesotheliomas. And then we also have something called a uh, PRMT5 inhibitor for about 30% of mesotheliomas that have a deletion in a gene called MTAP or MTAP. And so these therapies probably won't be the answer for everyone, but kind of if we can look at the mesothelioma and pick which populations might be best suited for each trial and then study them to figure out kind of, is this the right therapy? What is our next generation? What is our next step? That's very much what we're interested in here at Mass General. 
Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being with me today. You've answered so many great questions. I think this will be so helpful for our patients, um, especially people that are newly diagnosed and just getting introduced to kind of, you know, what the treatment options are and what is available to them, um, as well as, you know, people who have maybe had progression of disease and are looking forward um, to seeing what else is out there in clinical trials. So I really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for having me.